Hey, good morning, Harvest. How are we doing? Is anybody going to watch a football game today? Awesome. Yeah, we'll, we'll make sure we get, out, get you out of here in time. Hey, if you... Uh... <laughs> that was funnier than I thought it was going to be. Uh, all right, so if you have your Bible, please open them to John chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. We have ushers that will bring you one uh, if you don't have one. So, uh, but before we start, let me, let me ask a question this morning. <clears throat> Who here has ever received bad advice and then acted on it? Woo! All right, all right. So here's an example from, from my childhood. When I was in eighth grade, the summer after my eighth grade year, I was faced, listen, I was faced with the most desperate, life-altering, most difficult decision of my life up to that point. I had to decide between playing football or playing soccer. And some of you laugh, and, and yeah, it's kind of funny, but listen, when you're a 14-year-old kid, uh, your world is a lot smaller, so your problems seem what? A lot bigger. So, uh, guys, I'm agonizing over this. Uh, you know, basically, it's my life, the trajectory of my life, the friends I'm going to hang out with, uh, the athleticism that I may or may not develop. It's all hanging in the balance. I, maybe there's a future, uh, you know, after high school with one of these sports. So, very, very wisely, after listening to all of these opinions, coaches, uh, you know, other trusted people in my life, I made the decision to play football. Y'all, look at me. Um, right now, I'm, you know, 5'11", with my shoes on, 170 pounds, soaking wet. When I was 14, I wasn't 5'11", and I wasn't 170. I was about 150 with all my pads on, okay? So <laughs> the, the point is, it, it, I took bad advice because I was probably better at soccer, to be honest with you. I was a pretty good soccer player. But listen, thinking about bad advice, remember Job's friends? Job from the Old Testament, he's going through a terrible time of pain and suffering, a, a terrible time of grief and anguish. And what do his friends say? Well, Job, maybe you're just not righteous enough. Maybe your sin has caused this. Okay, not great advice. Those friends were not helpful. They were not helpful voices. They weren't speaking truth to Job, and he was wise to ignore them. But, but listen, here's what can happen in our own life. Here's what can happen in our own life when we walk through stress, when we walk through trial, when we walk through grief. Our thoughts can race ahead of our faith and the voices from unhelpful sources, unhelpful, unhelpful people inside our head, they, they try to tell us what to believe. But when God does that, when God brings us through those seasons of trial, testing or grief, whatever it may be, challenges, John 11 is going to help us. John 11 is going to then challenge us not to listen to those voices, not to listen to the wrong voices. Because here's our problem with grief, or here's our problem in grief. It's that if we listen to the wrong voices, we're going to miss out on the goal. If we listen to the wrong voices, we're going to miss out on the goal. And it's common to feel uh, I've felt this before, that you feel a little lost when you're in grief, you feel like you're in a maze and you can't get out. And, and the problem in grief is we, we like to listen to the wrong directions. We have a tendency to listen to the voices that only put us further and further in the maze. And if we, if we don't stop listening to them, we'll never get out. We will remain trapped or 
even find ourselves more and more lost. But if we listen to truth, if we trust Jesus and his words and listen to his words, we won't miss the purpose. We will get out and we won't miss the goal of our grief, which is this. It's to know and to experience the glory of God to know and experience the glory of God. Now, when I say a word like glory, you're like, okay, what, what, what does that mean? Because it's right. You might, you might think it's a, it's a vague word, and you might think of the, the idea of something mag- magnificent, that this magnitude or the, or the fame of something. And while that's true, there's another aspect of glory, really on the personal level that we can see, that, that Jesus even invites us into in John 11. So, so what we mean by glory on that personal level is, is that thing that happens in the heart of a believer during grief. It, it's what God gives to us when we simply have nowhere else to look, nowhere else to turn. Psalm 29, 11 says this, the Lord gives strength to his people and the Lord blesses his people with peace. The prophet Isaiah says he will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast on him. So, so glory on, on a personal level, it comes when we receive strength in that place, in that chaotic place, and can testify to ourselves and to others that the only way that we got through it was the power of the love and the peace that Jesus sustained us with. That's what we're talking about. That's glory, and that's the grace that meets us there in that experience. That's God at work in us. So in John 11, the beginning of the chapter, some of Jesus' closest friends, Mary and Martha uh, and, and their brother Lazarus, were some of his closest friends. And in this chapter, Lazarus has become seriously ill. This is, this is an illness that leads to death. That's the context. So the sisters send word to Jesus, but notice that they don't even ask him to come. They just tell him, hey, your friend, the one you love is sick. He's ill. They don't even ask, they just tell him the news, and they know, they know that Jesus is a healer, and they know that he loves Lazarus, but the friendship between the three of them was so strong, it was almost an assumption that Jesus would come to them. How often do we assume we know how Jesus is going to or should work? But Jesus had something else in mind here, which we see right away in verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And with these words, Jesus challenges. He, he, he rebukes a voice that we often listen to in, in grief. There's going to be three of them in this text. But the first one, the first voice we often listen to in, in grief is the voice of despair. The voice of despair, the voice that says, my grief has no purpose, or how can this be the plan? How can this be life-giving? How can this be a benefit to me? Maybe you feel like you've been serving God faithfully, faithfully right where he has you, and then trouble comes. You know, it's normal in those moments to, to have thoughts like Mary and Martha. If you say you love us, if you say you love us, and you say you love Lazarus, then where are you? Why are you delaying? It doesn't make any sense. There really must be no purpose then in this moment other than my own misery. It just can't be profitable. There's nothing in it for me. It's killing me. That's the voice of despair. But, But Jesus says otherwise. He says, this illness does not lead to death. 
implying that it does lead somewhere. It leads somewhere else. It leads somewhere good, namely for the glory of God. And, and, and friends, your grief, your trial, your, your conflict, the, the weight that you maybe carried in the room with you this morning, it's not aimless. It's not inconsequential. God has promised that in the end, it will serve both him and you. And we don't mean that when we think of glory, we're this, not this empty platitude that we can't touch or grasp. It's real. It can be experienced. So don't listen to the voice of despair. The second voice that we tend to listen to is the voice of dissent or disagreement, you might say. It's the protesting voice. My plan would have been better. Let's read from verse 5 to verse 8. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the, to the disciples, let us go to, to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Hear that. That's the first protest. Uh, Jesus, don't you remember? Uh, the Jews are trying to kill you. We were just there. That's why we fled Judea across the Jordan into the desert so they couldn't find us. And you want to go back? You want to go back to danger? You're, you're not thinking straight. Maybe you just need to sit down for a minute and rest. Jesus. But he responds in, in verse 9 and 10 with this little parable about each day having 12 hours, the point being that we need to obey God uh, while the opportunity is there or we might stumble. And then verse 11 and 12. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he's going to recover, okay? And there's that second protest. Jesus, he's, he's just asleep. Surely he, he'll be fine, okay? He is going to recover. It's not that bad. He just needs rest. It's not worth the risk. So Jesus stops speaking to them in riddles. And he comes out with it plainly in verse 14. He had said he's asleep, but I go to awaken him, but... But now he says plainly in verse 14, then Jesus said, Lazarus has died. Okay, we get it now. Guys, he's dead, like really dead, not mostly dead, not slightly dead like we hear in the Princess Bride, right? He is all the way dead. And in verse 15, Jesus says this, that for their sake, for their benefit, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But then we see yet a third and probably the sharpest protest from Thomas. Who, you remember Thomas? He gets the famous name. Uh, he gets to earn the famous name later on as Thomas the Doubter. Well, the, well, in this episode, he's Thomas the Dissenter. His comment in verse 16 just reeks of sarcasm and even mocking of Jesus. Jesus said, no, no, we're going to go back. We're going to go back to the danger. And then Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Like, I, I guess if this is the plan, we're just going to die. Have you ever reached that point? Now listen, you may not outwardly scoff or be sarcastic to Jesus the way Thomas does here, but perhaps you've lost confidence, perhaps you've lost boldness for Christ when things go wrong. Remember what Pastor Cal said last week? He said, so much of ministry is not so much trying to convince unbelievers to believe in Jesus. It's trying to convince the followers of Jesus to actually follow him and to actually do so when it matters most, to actually do so when it counts the most. I think of... 
think some of that comes from believers, including myself, trusting Jesus, listen, with the final destination, but not with the details along the way. Okay, it's the smaller details that we struggle with. We trust him with the end goal of our redemption, but with the macro, the big picture, yet we're more cautious, we're more hesitant, and sometimes we're even unwilling to trust him in the micro, right, in the small picture, the day-to-day. It's like this, I know that you began a good work in me, that you will carry it to completion on the day of Christ, but listen, I'm not sure I wanted you to do it this way. I, can't, I, I believe the promise that you are preparing a place for me, Jesus, and that I'm well on my way, but listen, I'm not sure I like this detour. Why would you add this? Why would you take that? This doesn't seem like the best road or the best path to take. And then there's another example that we see in descent of descent in verse 37. All the Jews around him, they said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? It's that similar tone. What was he doing this whole time? How could that have been the plan? Maybe, you know what, maybe he really isn't who he says he is. So some dissented, some may even have disdained the way Jesus was working. But closely related to that voice of dissent is the voice of doubt. The voice that says, God isn't there. He's forgotten me. He's emotionally detached. He doesn't truly care or understand. So let's pick up in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And this is what Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. And it's funny, Mary, Mary, Martha's sister, says the exact same thing in verse 32, Lord, if you would have been there, my brother would not have died. And in these statements, we we see the doubt creeping in, doubts about his love and compassion for us, or that he really knows what he is doing, or that his plans and purposes for us really are good and right. Remember John the Baptist? He's the one who preached before the ministry of Jesus to prepare the way. He was the forerunner for the ministry of Christ, and he actually gets thrown in jail for preaching. And John, the one that Jesus called greater than any on earth that was born among women, that was born of women. Even he doubted. He would say things like, are you the Messiah to come or should we look for somebody else when he was in prison, when things didn't go according to plan? I can remember a season when my wife and I, night after night, would have similar questions, would have similar prayers. Why did you lead us here? what's, What's this supposed to be doing? Why did you move our family? This doesn't make any sense. How could this be the plan? Were we wrong? Did we get this wrong? Jesus, you told us that you would provide bread to eat, but honestly, right now, it feels like a stone. Anybody been there? It must have been what it felt like for Mary and Martha. Yet, after orchestrating all of this, the whole scenario and delaying his arrival, Jesus has now put himself in both a physical and an emotional position to refute all of these doubts. So let's read on in verse 32. Skip down to verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved 
in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Listen, when I'm reading some of this, when I read these verses, I can't help but ask what God would do that. What God would before the creation of that world that we just read about. uh, How would a God, what God would freely and willingly choose to enter that experience? Answer, the Christian God. Our God. He did not have to. He did not have to come to earth or lower himself and take on a body of flesh. He did not have to put on a mind to put on the emotions that a broken world would then bear upon uh, uh, the body of flesh. He did, though. And there are clues all over John's gospel to show us his motive, to show us exactly why he did such an outrageous, astounding thing. And the answer is as beautiful as it is simple. Love. Love. For God so loved the world. Love is why he created the world. Love is why he entered the world. Love is why he experienced grief, sadness, and pain. Love is why he died for the world ultimately. And moving back up through John 11, we can see three examples of that love. And with those examples, three truths that we need to cling to. The voices that we need to listen to instead of despair, dissent, and doubt. And the first one, is that the love of Jesus is real. The love of Jesus is real. Listen, he loves you. He loves you because he loves you. Because he loves you. Because he loves you. And what's amazing about the person of Jesus is that his love is both eternal and emotional. It's eternal because it existed before the foundation of the world. The Bible tells us that before the world was created, God knew us personally and loved us. And I can remember one of the first moments that I knew Emily, my wife, that I knew her love was real to me. I was on my way home from a mission trip in Kenya, and she was supposed to be somewhere in Central America. And I get off the plane, and I walk down the exit ramp, and there she is. Surprise, surprise. And that's when I knew that she missed me, right? That's when I knew that she wanted to be with me. And, and, and for real, that's when I knew this was it. This is the woman that I want to spend the rest of my life with. And I, I kind of knew kind of before that, but that was, that was like the moment that this thing became real. And isn't it true? Like that, that's the same with our, with our girls. If you have kids, you know this. The, the, the love that you have for your children, it became real at some point. For us, it's when we held them in the hospital for the first time. But listen, amazingly, it's actually not that way with Jesus. It's even better. There wasn't a beginning of his love for us. We know he can never stop loving us because there was never a time that he did not love us. We know there can be no end to his love because there was no beginning to it. That's his eternal nature. He can't not love us. He loved us in eternity. He loves us now. He loves us forever. So his love is real, more real than any love on earth because it is eternal, but it is also real because it is emotional. There are real emotions with this. I have to admit that I can be emotionally detached at times. Guys, 
I'm the guy, I'm the husband, that if Emily brings a problem or a burden to me, my natural response is to what? As quickly as possible, find the practical answer. Young men about to be married, just married, take some notes. Okay, my, I, it's just, just quick. Let's just solve the problem, right? That's it, problem solved, but that's kind of shallow, really. That, that's shallow. That's not meeting her on the emotional level that she needs. That's not loving her like Jesus. So, so look in verse 33 again. When, we, when Jesus saw Mary, Martha, and all the others weeping, it says he was deeply moved. Now, the amazing thing about this, the original language here, it implies this, this movement, this deep movement is the, the, the air moving out of his lungs, violently rushing out of him with no warning. It was a gut punch. And anyone's, anyone who's ever had the wind knocked out of them knows this feeling, as does anyone who's been through genuine heartbreak. And I am an example. There, there was a time many years ago before Emily that I... Uh, that, that, that someone I love decided, you know what, I don't want him in my life anymore. And there wasn't really a warning. It was almost like uh, a, a limb was amputated immediately. I never got answers. And I remember being like on the floor in my room, not being able to breathe because I don't know how to get out of this maze. What is going on? And you feel that in your stomach, don't you? The air just leaves you. You can't breathe. You can't even move. And Jesus is grieved in that way, that very same way at the death of his friend and at the consequences in general of sin in the world. And observing this very, listen, very human experience, the Jews around him said, wow, he really loved Lazarus. His love for his people is, is real. He cares. He isn't passive. He's not a stoic, unfeeling savior. The, the, the one with supernatural power to create and restore life actually has the capacity to grieve death. The prophet Isaiah says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And that's the promise for you, believer. That's the promise that in Jesus, God knows and God enters our sorrow. Sorrow, listen, that he could have prevented but he did not. And he chose not because, number two, the love of Jesus is intentional. The love of Jesus is intentional. Go back to verse 14 and 15 for a second. Maybe you missed this the first time. Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there. Wait, wait a minute. Glad? How can you be glad for us that you weren't there to save them, him? How can you be glad at something that causes your people pain? And the answer is this. Listen, there are things more important than preventing your pain. There are things more important than preventing suffering, than preventing grief, than preventing pain. He, he knows what he's doing, friends. He did intend for this to happen. And the intention, the purpose behind all of it is that his disciples would believe and trust him more and believe and trust him more and more and more. Belief at all costs, friends. Now go back to verse 5 and 6. Let me read this one again. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus so 
When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Did did you catch that? Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. John uses them by name. He loved them so. Not he loved them but. Not he loved them however. He loved them so he stayed. Notice the purpose. Do you see that? The the intentionality. He loved them so he did not answer them. He loved them so he he did not go to help. At least right away. Friends, Jesus will stop at nothing for us to know and love him more. For for you to experience the peace of his glory. And, And hear me. That fact should not be a warning to you. I hope it's a comfort. I hope it's an encouragement. There's wisdom in God's plans. There is purpose in his perspective. There is love in his delays. There is grace in his silence. And every challenge we face, every season we walk through, every grief we experience, each one is specifically tailor-made for us as individuals so that we might draw closer to him. That's the intention. And it is always for our good and his glory. And the beautiful thing about our God is that those two things, our good and his glory, they're never mutually exclusive. They always go together. Number three, the love of Jesus is personal. You might say it's individual. Now stay here at the top of the chapter because something really interesting that is lost in translation in our English Bibles is that word love that John uses. In verse 3, when the women appeal to Jesus, they use the word phileo. That's friend, or that's the love that describes, that's the word that describes the love of a friend. But then jump down in verse 5, it's different. It's the same English word, but it's a different Greek word. Does anybody know what word it is? Agape. It's a higher form of love than friendship. It's the highest form of love, even greater than the love between friends. It's the unconditional, unstoppable, intentional, and personal love that the good shepherd, that God has for his sheep. It's a love that knows you the most. He knows your very, very best. He knows your very, very worst, and he still loves you the very, very most. He sees and pursues what each of us needs on that individual, on that personal level, in order to know and love him on the deepest level. Remember those prayers Emily and I had that I shared with you earlier? Listen, it's true that over time, God began to to reveal why we were going through what we went through. And that was a really great blessing for us to kind of see how things, see the purpose behind some of these things. But listen, the greatest blessing was not getting the answers. Hear me for a second. The greatest blessing was not getting the answers. The greatest blessing was that because of that season, We love Jesus more, and we love each other more. And after going through all that, our marriage was was better than it's ever been. What was that doing? It was refining us. And it was, it is specific to all of us. He he sees the deeper and the wider picture, and he arranges our circumstances uh, perfectly and specifically and accordingly so that we can experience his love in greater and deeper ways than we would have if he wouldn't have sent us through the maze. Circumstances that were designed again for, designed for and causes us to press into him. Those are the truths we need to cling to, okay? And someone who got this, 
So, someone who was beginning to understand this was Martha. Look what she says in verse 21 and 22. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She says, even now, in the midst of death, in the midst of the death of my own brother, even though I don't know why you delayed, even now, I know that I can trust you. I know that there has to be some explanation, even if I don't know it yet, and I recognize that the power of God is with you. You see, she's bringing her despair. She's bringing her doubt, even some of her own dissent, right to Jesus. She says, I don't know what you're doing, but I trust you. And notice later on, Mary, her sister, does this in verse 32. She says this, I know. She says, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. She brings her doubt. She brings her doubt. She fell to the feet of Jesus, and she too brings that to him. So the big takeaway for us this morning from these examples is this. If we don't want to miss out on the glory we can experience in grief, we need to bring our despair. We need to bring our doubts. We need to bring even our descent to the feet of Jesus. We need to bring them to the one who really and eternally loves us, who does so intentionally, who does so personally. We need to bring it all to him. So Jesus continues back with Martha. He continues his conversation with her in verse 23. He says, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. But Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And look, yes, Martha is right in thinking Jesus is talking about, originally, the resurrection on the last day. Yes and amen, but, but Jesus wants to see, wants her to see even more. He says, I am the resurrection and the life, meaning overcoming death and true eternal life are found only in relationship to him. Final death is impossible for those who trust in him, and only those who trust in him, that he is the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world, will share in that resurrection. And I wonder, will you be there? And so in order to demonstrate his power, his identity, let's take a minute to read verses 38 to 44. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you? Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen and his face wrapped with cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him, let him go. Come on. Look, there, there are a lot of details I wish that we could get to, like the fact that Jesus totally discards Martha's comment about the smell. Like, Martha, I'm trying to show you the glory of God, okay? It might get a little smelly sometimes. 
I'm trying to show you the glory of God. Or what about this? The details about Lazarus and all the strips and everything, what happens to him after they unwrap him? He actually shows up in chapter 12. Maybe we'll see that next week. Presumably unwrapped, I guess. But I I want us to come full circle here. I, I want us to come full circle. Can you look at verse 40 again? I told you that if you believe in me, If you cling to me in the midst of trouble, you will see my glory. That was the point of the whole thing. Friends, the goal of our grief, the goal of our struggle, the goal of our difficulty, the goal of our fill-in-the-blank is glory. And by glory, I mean seeing and knowing more of God, more of his grace, more of his peace in our lives. It's the strength he gives us by his spirit to keep walking, to keep pressing on in obedience. It's the strength that we know that if we didn't have, we'd be too weak to carry it on our own. It's the strength that proves to ourselves and to the world that he is good. Here's an example. When when the prophet Jeremiah, when he was grieving over the fall of Jerusalem, he wrote Lamentations. And he wrote specifically Lamentations 3, verse 31 and 32. It says this, The Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion. Listen, he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. compassion and a multitude of his mercies. That's glory. (laughs) That's sharing in his glory. And in the midst of grief or pain or struggle, Jesus invites us into it. And the purpose, more belief, right? More experience, more trust, more comfort, more intimacy, and more weight and new measures and and new magnitudes of his grace and peace and love in our lives. So no matter matter what it is this morning, you've, you've got a diagnosis that you got this last week. Or maybe you're planning a funeral. Or maybe it's the grief of a difficult or failed marriage or a wayward child. Or Listen, the life that you were trying to build, the life that you dreamed of, you're realizing it's not going to be a reality for you. God hasn't healed you. The truth is we don't have to wait for heaven to experience glory. God wants you to know that you are cared for. He wants you to be comforted and changed by the weight of his glory today, and he paid a great price for you to do so. There's a verse in Romans 3 that talks about, the Apostle Paul talks about how all of humanity has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what we see in Jesus raising Lazarus is not only his command, his sovereignty over life and death, it's also a picture of what he was about to do. He was going to lay his life down down and be raised so that those who trust in him will see and share in his glory, the glory we failed to achieve, the glory we fell short of as a race. He's he's communicating that because all humanity has indeed fallen short, he would come as the son of man to weep with us and to bleed for us, to lay his life down as the perfect sacrifice, as the one who did not fall short. Then, Then he would be raised to give life to all who believe in him. And later on in in Romans, Paul goes on, he writes about this hope that the creation itself will be set free from bondage to corruption and obtain, listen, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It is in this hope we are saved. 
And it is the hope that my grandmother, who died just a few weeks ago, was saved in. Now, to give you an idea of who this woman was, she's the matriarch. (laughs) She and her marriage to her husband, my, my granddad, like they've been married 70 years, 69 years. This amazing testament of faithfulness to each other and faithfulness to the Lord. This is the woman when going to grandma's house, she would sit me down and she would open Psalm 23. And she would go through each line, each stanza, and just teach me about Jesus. We're gonna go down to Oklahoma in a few weeks. And we're gonna preach, and maybe we'll preach John 11. We're gonna preach, we're gonna grieve, we're gonna mourn, but we're not gonna mourn, we're not gonna grieve as those without hope. Were those without peace. So just like he did for Mary and Martha, we as believers, we hope in the God who will one day turn funerals into family reunions. He will make tombs a memory of the distant past, and he will turn grief into a multitude of mercies. So no matter where you stand, no matter where you sit, no matter where you lay, hear his voice. Listen to his voice. Come out of your tomb and follow him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that your mercies are new every morning. And not just the good mornings, not just the comfortable mornings, but the mornings of stress, the mornings of grief, the, morning, the mornings of trial, the mornings that we wake up in the maze the mornings where we feel like we can't get out of it, but oh Lord, help us to be drawn to your words. Help us to be drawn to your word that says you love us, you care for us. There's a purpose behind this. I can know you in a deeper way. You love me intentionally. You love me personally. You love me eternally. Your love is real for us. Help us to know it, to experience it. And we know that this season is ultimately for my good and your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.